Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 112, Tanzimat. No new patrons this time because it's been a few hours since I recorded the last episode. But as always, consider pledging if you can. Hopefully, you're all in good financial shape and handling quarantine and all this COVID-19 craziness well. Wishing you all lots of luck, really. We all need it. So, getting right into it. Last time, we saw rebellions occurring throughout the Ottoman realm as a series of historical forces collided. The Bulgarian National Revival is progressing as more books are published and schools established. The Ottoman Empire is reforming to become more militarily and administratively centralized, and more of its subjects are revolting in the belief that outside forces, often Serbia and or Russia, will assist them. However, they're wrong. In every case, at least so far, they have been wrong. Russia won't upset the established order, and Serbia will only assist so long as Serbia can benefit, which thus far isn't very often. The Ottomans overplayed their hand against Egypt, resulting in a military defeat. However, the great powers are interested in keeping the status quo, and so they intervened, stripped Egypt of all but its core territory, and basically nipped the growing Egyptian power in the bud. Finally, Mahmoud II finally died after more than three decades on the throne. His legacy was a profound one, as he had managed to do what centuries of his ancestors could not, break the power of the Janissaries and bring genuine reform to the Ottoman Empire. However, these reforms have not yet left the Ottomans with any real military power, and really have left them in a vulnerable transition state in the meantime. Now, Mahmoud's 16-year-old son, Abdul Majid I has taken the throne, and it remains to be seen whether the boy will be able to continue his father's reforms. But first, we need to jump back into this moment. The Ottoman army in Syria had been destroyed in June, just days before Mahmoud II's death. To make matters worse, the entire Ottoman fleet had decided to defect because they believed the new sultan had sided with Russia. Last time, I mentioned how the Europeans had gotten involved here, but this time I want to go into a bit more detail because it really illustrates and sets up the beginning of Abdul-Majid's reign. In fact, France and Spain both supported Egypt, while Russia, Austria, Britain, and Prussia supported the Ottomans. Remember that the powers backing the Ottomans were the most arch-conservative. France, on the other hand, wanted to use Egypt to boost its own regional power and influence. Remember that France was a losing power after the Napoleonic Wars, and so they were still more interested in kind of upsetting the status quo than the winning powers. Now, Abdul-Majid's advisors were ready to cede Syria to Egypt, but the European powers backing the Ottomans intervened to prevent this. Remember, they were concerned with the status quo in the Balkans, the Dardanelles, and to prevent a new power from developing in the Mediterranean. Meanwhile, the British sent a naval squadron to Syria to force an Egyptian withdrawal before things escalated further. Weeks later, a conference convened in London to resolve the issue. 
In short, Muhammad Ali of Egypt was offered the right to retain control of Egypt and Acre if he withdrew his army and returned the Ottoman fleet. He refused. Feeling confident with the full backing of France, kicking off the Oriental Crisis of 1840. Within a month, the British fleet off Syria began bombarding Beirut and battling the Egyptian force there. Over the remaining months of the year, this British force, with some Austrians and Ottomans in tow, attacked various Egyptian positions along the coast. By October, France was alone in its continued support of the Egyptians, and not wanting this to trigger a European war, they relented and withdrew their support. Soon, the British fleet was at Alexandria, where its commander personally negotiated an end to the crisis. Ironic that he was able to do all that while the diplomats in London couldn't. The agreement was that Muhammad Ali could retain his semi-independent status within the Ottoman Empire and would be able to pass it along to his descendants, something unprecedented in the Ottoman world. Never before had a regional Ottoman ruler been allowed to have its own, his own dynasty. Furthermore, Muhammad Ali's domains would be reduced to only Egypt and Sudan, which, well, the Egyptians had conquered Sudan anyways, it wasn't the central Ottoman government, so fair enough. In essence, it was a return to the status quo, the old status quo, except that Egypt would now be ruled by a genuine dynasty. Oh, and the Egyptians had to reduce the size of their military and give back the Ottoman fleet. Now, considering the Sultan's young age and the fact that this crisis took up to a year of his rule, he had actually been busy with other plans in the meantime. On November the 3rd, 1839, he issued the Tanzimat Firmani, aka the Imperial Edict of Reorganization, which would give its name to an entire era of reform that would have a profound impact on Bulgaria and the entire Ottoman realm. The edict was read out in an imperial rose garden before an audience of government officials and foreign dig dignitaries. It must have been odd for a teenager to read out a long legal document setting out a total revamping of the fundamentals of a nearly 600-year-old empire. But the reason the young man was able to continue the push for reforms was that he was being well, largely controlled by senior officials from his father's government, who took it into their hands to continue his reforms. Now, this edict was designed to both secure the reforms made by Mahmud and to take things a step further. While the edict had many provisions, there were three core ones. One, it guaranteed security to all Ottoman subjects. Two, it standardized the taxation and conscription systems. Specifically, it moved towards something more like an income tax, where subjects would pay according to their means hopefully reducing the burden of unscrupulous tax farmers. And it would be about 10%. In addition, it reduced the years of military service required. However, as Misha Glennie points out, quote, the empire did not have the resources either to police the activity of the tax farmers or to establish an alternative administration. The tax farmers remained, and indeed grew richer at the expense of not just the population, but the state's authority as well. End quote. In other words, not much functionally changed in the years after this, but we'll get to that in more detail. It also allowed for non-Muslim subjects to serve in the military or, alternatively, pay an additional tax in lieu of service. Functionally, this also meant little change as very few non-Muslims were interested in military service. And finally, number three, 
The final guarantee in this declaration was for public trials. Functionally, this meant that new civil courts were introduced alongside Sharia law for the empire's Muslims. This also essentially declared that Muslims and non-Muslims were now to be equal in the law in both civil and religious rights. But again, we'll talk in more detail about how this was actually implemented. Other reforms which followed also declared that anyone acting against the state should be put to death, and things like paper banknotes and post offices were introduced within a year of the proclamation. In other words, it was a very busy first two years of the young Abdul Majid's reign. Now, it's important to note that despite how grand this proclamation was, little functionally changed for the empire's non-Muslims. That said, the military reforms did go into place in the years following the proclamation. But as I mentioned, little changed in the way that taxes were collected. Although courts were established, a Christian still could not testify against a Muslim, and if a Muslim killed a non-Muslim, they could pay a fine determined by a local judge instead of facing criminal prosecution. So again, although it was declared that Muslims and non-Muslims would essentially be equal before the law, Functionally, that was still not the case. Other issues commonly mentioned by Bulgarians when talking about what life was like under the Ottomans also played a role here. For example, many were still not allowed to build churches or sound church bells. The Tanzimat reforms allowed this, but again, there was no real effort to enforce these new reforms, so little functionally changed. Again, all this created a situation where the empire's Muslims were furious that their rights were being eroded, while the empire's Christians felt that the reforms had had too small of an effect and weren't really ever implemented. So both sides are angry. To make matters worse, the single institution which was supposed to advocate for the empire's orthodox Christians was the Patriarchate, which, as I'll discuss more later, at this point was dominated by Greeks and rife with corruption. Essentially, the Greeks running the church were close to the Ottoman authorities, which helped ensure their privileges, and so the Orthodox Church had very little interest in pushing the Ottomans to implement these reforms and make fundamental change. Overall, even though the Janissaries were finally gone, the central government of the Ottoman Empire still did not have enough power to change the way things were done on the ground. So, We're back to that irony that this podcast has touched on many times before. The way Ottoman history is commonly taught, it's this vague notion of the Turks that are doing all these oppressive things. But the Ottoman government is usually the implied actor who is oppressing the empire's Christians. But as I've said before, in a general sense, the Ottomans were always more concerned with running the empire and its senior officials than, and could clearly see that oppressing its Christian population would only weaken the empire. So, I think the real villains of this period from a Bulgarian perspective should be the corrupt local officials who oppressed the population and resisted Ottoman-led reforms to curtail their power. Not to say the central Ottoman government is perfect and great and blah blah blah, there are plenty of problems there as well, but I think if you really look at what's causing the worst harm for local people on the ground, it's those local kind of notables and rulers. That said, as we've seen, when the local populations responded by rebelling, the central government does not treat them with an ounce of kindness simply because the rebellion was triggered by policies that the government opposes. While reformers in Constantinople made attempts to create a more fair imperial order, the response to opposition was still nothing short of brutality. But 
we now have a sense of the changes that were coming to Ottoman society and how they impacted, or didn't, the Bulgarians of the empire. However, those Bulgarians were far from passive. 1840 saw the beginning of two decades in which the forces of the Bulgarian National Revival would accelerate quickly. Historian R.J. Crampton summarized these events, stating, quote, The spread of education and literacy meant the creation of a new element of Bulgarian society, the intelligentsia. Composed of priests and professional groups, above all teachers, the intelligentsia maintained strong links with the peasantry from which it mostly came. The cultural revival went further than education and spread of literacy. In the 1840s, there was the first attempt to produce a modern Bulgarian literature, especially in poetry. In the 1840s, Bulgarian art began to break away from the formalism which had characterized most of it in the last century or more. New colors and previously neglected folk motifs enlivened even religious art, whilst secular painting at last found a figure of real stature in Zahari Zograf. Folk motifs also enhanced the output of the, tri- of the typically Bulgarian craft of wood carving. In church music, an identifiable Bulgarian form had emerged by the end of the 18th century, and by the 1840s, the first musical ensembles had been formed. In the Bulgarian lands, almost all forms of cultural and artistic activity were transformed in the years 1840 to 1860. More specifically, in 1840 alone, the Russian government began giving out stipends for Bulgarian youth to study in Russia. The first Bulgarian printing press was established in Smyrna, aka Izmir, with Slavic type ironically imported from the United States. Later in the year, another printing press was established in Thessalonica, and the first girls' school in Bulgaria was founded in Pleven with help from the Bishop of Vratsa and local Bulgarian notables. Within just a year, that girls' school had 90 students. Remember, the first Bulgarian school at all had just opened six years earlier, and by this point there were now 13 Bulgarian schools. Nufit Rilski also published his translation of the New Testament with the aforementioned press in Smyrna putting out 5,000 initial copies. However, the Patriarchate later banned it and attempted to find and destroy all of those copies. Another note is that this book was actually translated in Gorna Jamia, which is now known as Bulgograd in my former home. For that reason, it was actually published in the Western Macedonian dialect of Bulgarian, at this time, the central dialect from around Tornovo and Gabrovo was becoming the standard for Bulgarian literature, and this really hurt the influence of this particular translation. But again, many, the main enemy of this translation was ironically the Patriarchate. It saw the availability of the Bible and vernacular Bulgarian as a challenge to its authority. Elsewhere in 1840, there were actually many battles between this organization and the Bulgarian Enlighteners. In that year, Bulgarian representatives arrived in Constantinople to petition to have a man named Neofit Bozveli appointed the Metropolitan of Turnovo. However, the Patriarchate bribed Ottoman officials to have a Greek appointed to the position. As a result of this, and more general campaigning against Greek domination of the church, Neofit Bozveli was exiled to Mount Athos. Overall, hostility to the Greek-dominated church was growing. Back in the 1820s, Bulgarian villages paid about twice as much in taxes to the church as they paid to the Ottoman government. As Crampton put it, quote, In the 1840s, the Bulgarians' protest became quite clearly one not against corrupt Greek bishops because they were corrupt. 
it was against Greek bishops because they were Greek, end quote. So we're seeing this shifting perception of the patriarchate and many Bulgarians viewing them as just as much an enemy as the central Ottoman government. In most Bulgarian lands, this was just one more reason for revolt. In the area around Nish, where the local population shared Serbian and Bulgarian ethnic identities, local leaders were preparing an action against the Ottomans in protest of the church issues I just mentioned, as well as how the Tanzimat reforms were failing them. The revolt leaders initially appealed to the Serbian state for assistance and received none. Then, on Easter of 1841, local Muslims attacked a church, and this triggered the uprising that they were already preparing for. The Serbian government quickly distanced itself from the whole affair, and it was brutally put down. The entire area around Niš, Pirot, Vranje, and Toplica suffered terrible reprisals. But that wasn't the only revolutionary action that was in the works at the time. It's at this moment that I want to introduce a very famous revolutionary known throughout Eastern Europe, Georgi Rukovsky. He was born into a wealthy and patriotic family in Kotel, Bulgaria in 1821. He was actually the nephew of Georgi Mamarchev, who had helped organize the Welch plot against the Ottomans, and it actually, and this led to Rukovsky actually changing his name to Georgi in his uncle's honor. His family had been able to send him to a school in Kotel, then Karlovo, and ultimately to the Greek Orthodox College in Constantinople. There, he met and was heavily influenced by the aforementioned Neofit Bosveli. In this environment, Rokoski founded the Macedonian Society, which aimed to liberate Bulgaria from the Ottomans. With this task in mind, he left Constantinople in the summer of 1841 to go to Braela, a town on the Danube just before it curves to form the Danube Delta. So, you know, at that part where the Danube goes north for a while. Now, this town's proximity to Russia, as well as Russia's effective control of Wallachia and Moldavia, helped turn it into a hotbed of Bulgarian literary and revolutionary activities. When Rukovsky arrived, he worked under a fake identity, George Macedon, if you're interested, not very subtle, if you ask me, and taught Greek and French, he was exceptionally well-educated, spoke many languages, under this assumed identity, and using that identity, he obtained a Greek passport from the local Greek consul. At the same time, some 300 revolutionaries from Braila were ready to cross the Danube into Bulgarian territory and lead a rebellion. However, Wallachian soldiers prevented their crossing, leading to fighting that killed about 80. Afterwards, many of the Bulgarian revolutionaries were captured and executed, while the remainder were forced to flee. Rakowski quickly took charge of organizing a second Braila rebellion, literally just weeks after the failure of the first. He slowly gathered both Bulgarian and Greek residents of the area together to form a new band. They hoped the Wallachian authorities would actually allow their passage and that once in Bulgaria, they would be able to trigger a larger uprising. However, this time, they aimed to cross the Danube with two ships. But word got out, specifically to the Russian government, and the Russians informed the Wallachians. That same year, Vasil Aprilov, who had actually established the first Bulgarian school in Gabrovo, also published two works in Odessa, one arguing that Bulgaria deserved credit for the Cyrillic alphabet, and another one about Bulgarian education. He, ironically enough, informed the Russian authorities about the Bulgarian activities in Braila. This led to the arrest of Peter Ganchev, who was helping Rokovsky secure Bulgarians 
in Russian-controlled Bessarabia and who ran customs there. So, in other words, the whole endeavor was betrayed by an informant and the organizers were captured and sentenced to death. Rokovsky himself turned himself into the Russians and, well, they handed him over to the Volokians who sentenced him to death as well. But he was lucky. He had just obtained that Greek passport because it meant the Ottomans were obliged to hand him over to the Greek independent Greek state instead of killing him themselves. Now, the Greeks were supposed to carry out that execution, but the Greek ambassador in Constantinople instead helped Rokovsky escape to Marseille in southern France. There, he would lay low for the time being. He originally intended to travel all the way to Paris, but he ran out of money, so he waited there, establishing more contacts to aid further revolutionary activities. In the last days of 1842, a group of Bulgarians living in Serbia sent a letter to the Russian consul in Belgrade, very politely requesting assistance in obtaining their independence. The letter points out the immense sacrifices that have been made and will continue to be made in the Bulgarian fight for independence. Unsurprisingly, though, the Russian state did not change its stance in response to the letter. Now, the next year, 1843, saw yet another attempt at a Braila uprising, and it was discovered and its organizers were sentenced to death or hard labor. Now, with that, I want to bring this episode to a close. It's a bit on the shorter side, but I thought this was a good moment to finish, because the Ottoman Empire has now been saved from potential destruction by the Egyptians yet again, and the European powers are consistently proving that they're only really interested in either maintaining the status quo vis-a-vis the Ottomans, or if that fails, using events there to expand their own power. Bulgarian revolutionaries are also appealing to governments of both Russia and Serbia, but both states show no interest in helping. Moreover, Russia is willing to turn Bulgarian revolutionaries into the Ottoman authorities to help their own position in Constantinople. And yet, despite all the setbacks, the flowering of Bulgarian education and literature continues. Every year, more books are published, more schools are established, and more Bulgarians acquire education. Furthermore, although the Tanzimat reforms have not yet led to any substantial changes, the economic situation in Bulgaria is improving, allowing more families to fund that education, which is, therefore, fueling the national revival. Taken together, we have Ottoman authorities working feverishly to reform the empire enough that it can survive, while so many citizens of that empire work to destroy it. Next time, we'll see how these forces continue their struggle. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com, and you can find a link to the episode blog post for this one with images, timelines, all that good stuff. And stay safe, everyone. I'll catch you in the next one.